The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. Please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, O Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you again this week, this beautiful low country day uh, gathering. Um, we wanted a water feature. We couldn't afford it with the new building, so we have Lake Wilbon uh, out there in the parking lot. We're going to add some koi uh, to it. You'll be able to feed them uh, throughout the course of the week. If you have children, it'll be a great event. Uh, no, but we are glad to be together. Several of you over the course of weeks have asked um, boy, it'd be nice to, to know who it is that's reading Scripture, and uh, this morning, that was Jesse Foxworth. She and her husband, Charles, uh, served faithfully uh, here at the church, and uh, Jesse both up front and in the back in the video and in the AV support, and so we're thankful for them and the others who come uh, and read uh, God's Word each week. This morning, it's this section, as I mentioned last week, uh, is a section of Scripture in chapter 16, 17, and 18, which are filled with challenging passages. They're passages which many pastors, as you preach, will pick certain ones that are easier and more palatable. Uh, but as we move through Luke verse by verse and section by section, we want to be faithful to address even the difficult ones. And this morning is, is again like that. This is Jesus being asked by the Pharisees, the leaders of the church at the time, 
uh, tell us about the kingdom. He, didn't, he wasn't upset with them. It was reasonable for them to ask him about the kingdom because he came and he said, I'm coming proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. They would have been astute on uh, different uh, men who had come and saying they were Messiah and were presenting the kingdom. And so they were coming to him and were simply asking, would you tell us about uh, the kingdom? And so Jesus begins with a small dialogue with those religious leaders of the day, and then he turns from them to his disciples. We don't know if it's just the 12 or if that language is a little bit broader to say uh, the, the larger group of disciples who were around him, followers, and he begins to teach them a little bit more uh, about the kingdom. Why this is important is many of you pray regularly in your uh, daily times of devotion with the Lord and of spiritual rhythms and practices within your uh, lives that you pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. We pray kingdom language in our prayer life. Christ was saying as you pray, uh, you need to pray kingdom language. You need to understand the kingdom. Now, for most people in the church, we have little or no understanding, very, uh, a very limited theological framework for the kingdom of God. And then when he talks about his kingdom come, we don't know if it's already come. Is it established? Is it coming again? Uh, was it with the first advent of Christ? Is it going to come in the second advent of Christ? Uh, there's lots and lots of confusion. And so Jesus is teaching, both in their day, there was lots and lots of confusion, and in our day, he's teaching us about the kingdom. So I'm going to give some remarks just in general about the kingdom of God, just broadly. And then we're going to talk about some specifics of looking at the kingdom, and Jesus teaches in here that there is a present reality to the kingdom of heaven, and there's a future reality to the kingdom of heaven. And then, what do we do in this time or age of tension of the already and the not yet? The presentness, to coin a new word, the presentness of the kingdom and the futureness of the kingdom. They have those two realities. But yet they come together and they cross over, and we're living in that time now where the kingdom is at hand, but it's not fully at hand. And so let's first start with his first point. It's just simply understanding broadly uh, the language of the kingdom of heaven. In order to understand it, you have to go back and have the understanding of Old Testament promises. The Pharisees had, were astute on the Old Testament. They would have known the promises of Ezekiel and Isaiah, the promises of Abraham, the promises of God to say that the kingdom of Israel would remain and be established, and that one day there would be Messiah. There would be one who came and ushered in uh, this new reign, this new kingdom of Israel, this new kingdom of God. And so as the Old Testament ended in Malachi with promises of the coming of the kingdom, there were 400 years of dark ages, as you would, where there was no prophetic voice. There was no one talking. And usually what happens when God is not directly speaking in this way, people fill the void. 
folks don't like quiet. They don't like it to be silent, and so you start to conjecture. You start to, to fill the space with, well, maybe this is what it means, and maybe this is what it means, and there were all sorts of theologies created about the coming of the kingdom. Well, by Jesus' day, the most prevalent one had been decided by the Pharisees. The leaders in the rabbinic tradition at that time had come up, and their theology of the kingdom of heaven was this. The Messiah is going to come, and he will be a military and political leader who will reestablish Israel in the line of David and Solomon and will expel any foreigners, this is Rome at the time, uh, from the seat and, and remove them, and Israel will return to its glory days in all of its beauty. Jesus comes, and he says, no. He says, no. The kingdom of heaven can only be understood in me. I am the interpretation. I am the interpreter. I am the one through whom, you understand, he comes and he says, uh, I'm preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, we can say that the kingdom came in Jesus Christ and will come in its fullness when he returns. And for the Old Testament Jew, and then for uh, that first century Jewish person, they would have said, wait a second, we need to understand the who, the where, and the hows of this kingdom. Who, who is the kingdom? Who's in the kingdom? Who are the people uh, of the kingdom? Now, in the Old Testament, not, and you're, some of you are probably glazing over, uh, we'll get to the good stuff of when's it going to come and should you care about that, but this is important. Because if you don't have a, by the way, if you don't have a proper theological framework, how do you understand anything? You're just to the next book you read and to the next author. And so, by the way, it's important to know what you understand. And so, the who? Who are the people of the kingdom? Well, in the Old Testament, there were three main figures, Adam, Abraham, and David. That was the kingdom figures. You were part of Adam's kingdom, the lineage of Adam. And then it said that was all busted apart. And then there was the prophecy to Abraham. It says, oh, well, if you're part of Abraham's people, Abraham's uh, family, then you'll be a part of the kingdom. And then the promise came that there will always be a seed of David on the throne. Now, what we find, and the beauty of what we find in the New Testament is this. The first Adam, there's also a second Adam. Christ is the second Adam. Christ said, I am the second Adam, and so you find your life in the kingdom through me. He said, I'm the second Abraham. In the New Testament, it speaks of the seed of Abraham, singular, masculine, that he is the seed, that Jesus is the seed of Abraham. He's the true one. And he says, so entrance into Abraham's lineage comes through Christ, the second Abraham, and he says, I am the seed, I am the true David, I'm the second David. So what Jesus is saying is the way to understand the who is this, Jesus is the last Adam, he's the last Abraham, he's the last uh, David, and therefore Jesus is the head of a new people, a new race, the people of God. And so all who are in Christ are in the kingdom. So the way to be in the kingdom is to be in Christ, not to just be of Adam, human. That doesn't get you in the kingdom. You have to be of the seed of the woman, 
from Genesis chapter 3. You have to be in Christ. It doesn't mean enough just to be uh, of Abraham's people. So just being an Israelite, just being a Jew, doesn't get you in. No, you have to be in the second Abraham. And you can't just look to David. You have to understand to be in the second David. So Christians, those in Christ, are the people of the kingdom. So recognize that. If you're in Christ, you're a person of the kingdom. Where? Where is the kingdom being established? That's what the uh, disciples were asking at the end of this. They said, where? Where's all of this taking place? Jesus says, it takes place in me. And again, this blew apart everything of the Old Testament theology of what they thought they knew. And by the way, it dismantles many bad theological frameworks of today. Because what Jesus was saying was, look at all the Old Testament imagery of where the kingdom is going to be established. The promised land. It's in the garden. It's in the land of Israel. It's in the holy city of Jerusalem. It's in Zion. It's at the temple. And what Jesus comes and says is this. I'm the temple. I'm Zion. I'm the promised land. Uh, I am the one to whom all of these things have been pointing So again, I've replaced the temple, I've replaced Jerusalem, I've replaced all of this, and thus those indwelt by Christ become the place of God's rule. Saying if you're in Christ, and Christ is in you, then the kingdom of heaven is also in you. It is taken up. So where you go, by the way, individual and church, you take with you the very kingdom of heaven. So where is the kingdom be established? We're not looking for it to come back to Jerusalem. We're not looking for it to come to Israel to be reestablished. We see it now in the church, in the bride of Christ, in God's people, Christ's people. And how is it being established? We've seen the who, the where. How is it being established? It's being established only in Christ. In the incarnation, he lived under the rule of God perfectly. And he was able to say in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him, that is my father. He was and is the king, and he repeatedly exhibited all of his kingdom powers, and that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for he was God's person, in God's place, under God's rule, and all those in him are God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. So true Christianity, kingdom Christianity, hear this, kingdom Christianity is radically Christ-centered. Christ is the understanding of all things. People go, why do you highlight Jesus so much? Because that's the only way to understand anything. We so radically center ourselves on Christ. We know him, we follow him, we look at him, we follow what he says. We do these things because he's saying, if you want to understand kingdom, if you want to be in the kingdom, if you want to represent the kingdom, it comes through union with me. By the way, secondary comment for you, a study on the words in Christos, in Christ, union with Christ, would be one of the most blessed studies that you could ever do uh, in the Scriptures, to recognize that our union with Christ is the most important thing that's ever happened uh, to us by the work of God and His Spirit. So now we understand here's the kingdom. The kingdom established in Christ, through Christ, by Christ, and we who are Christians are in that kingdom. So now let's look at the present reality and the future reality, the present reality of the kingdom, verses 20 and 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in the ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is and there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Are you catching the irony in this conversation? 
the Pharisees are coming to Jesus, the king and the kingdom. He is the incarnation of the kingdom. He is the king of the kingdom. And they're going, when's the kingdom coming? That would be like me walking up to Michael Jordan and going, I'm really interested in meeting the greatest basketball player of all times. He would go, well, you just have. Some of you might argue that. It's not an argument, by the way. There are those who think that he's the greatest basketball player in all times and those who are wrong. And so it'd be that silly for me to come to him and go, where can I meet the greatest basketball player of all times? This is what the Pharisees are doing. They're going, we need to hear, we want to learn about the king and the kingdom. Can you, can you introduce us to him? Right here. Kingdom of God. Uh, it is presently in your midst. They were arrogantly and unknowingly asking the kingdom's king, indeed the king of kings, when his kingdom would come. But this kingdom that's come doesn't look like most people expect. Now for the Jews of his day, they expected it to be a total overthrow. In one of the accounts, I believe it's in John, I may be wrong, of the feeding of the 5,000. It says that after Jesus fed the 5,000, that the people tried by force to take him and make him king. They looked and they saw an exhibition of, king, an ex exhibition of kingdom power and authority and went, you must be the king. We need to get you to Jerusalem so you can overthrow Rome. And Jesus is saying here, that's not how it looks. It's nothing like that. They were interpreting the times. They were looking for signs of when Rome would be thrown off and there would be a new Israelite, a new Jewish kingdom established. But what they did in looking, they missed it altogether. And you may go, those silly Jews of the first century. Well, friends, how many of you are fascinated with interpreting the times and looking for signs of the kingdom of heaven? of when it's going to be established fully. The books are flying off the shelves. The ministries are all over uh, the airwaves. They uh, are all the podcasts. I've been asked question after question during the pandemic, is this it, Bill? Is this the sign? Is this it? The kingdom is coming. And friends, I would tell you this, the kingdom is already here. And the presentness of this kingdom is seen in and through the lives of Christians. Recognizing Jesus as Messiah and seeing the kingdom is a matter of inner revelation and divine insight, not interpreting everything that's outside there. It's coming, and it is a proper looking of entering the kingdom. And Kent Hughes writes it this way, it's an inner process of repentance and response to the invisible winds of the Holy Spirit. It is an, in, an inner process of repentance in response to the invisible winds of the Holy Spirit. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you are following him as your Lord and King, then friends, you're in the kingdom. And if you're in the kingdom, that means the kingdom is with you. And what we see this morning in this gathered body right here is a representation of the kingdom of heaven. It is established in the world. Thy kingdom come. It is here. We are in a kingdom age. 
We're not looking for a kingdom age when God will rip out all of the Christians, remove them, and then bring in a time of rule. He is ruling within his church, within the lives of the Christians, and so we go out into the world. That's why a theology of the church is so absolutely essential. How we look and live and be as a church and as individuals is keenly important because the world around us is looking and going, is that what the kingdom of heaven is like? Is it like your marriage? Is it like your life? Is it like your parenting? Is it like your teenage years? Is that what the kingdom of heaven is like? Because you say you're a Christian, you say you're in the church, and so I'm watching you run your business. I'm watching you come and blow off a little bit of steam on Friday afternoons. I'm watching because I'm interpreting, as the non-believers saying, I'm interpreting kingdom through you because you are the kingdom. And some of you are going, oh no. You mean people are watching? Yeah, I hate to break it to you, people are watching. They're not just watching me, but heck knows people are watching me all the time. That's what Jesus was talking about last week. When he said, it's one thing to be tempted, but woe to the person through whom temptation comes. What he was saying was this. If you're claiming to be a citizen of the kingdom, yet living as if you're not, and you're causing others to not want to be a part of that kingdom, woe to you. The tie-in of these two passages of the first part of 17 and the second part. Fun passages, yeah? Jesus says we are the kingdom. We are the part, we are the presentness of this upside-down kingdom where we go into the world, and as a Christian, we want to see justice in the world. We go into the kingdom and we want to have a voice for the marginalized and the voiceless. We come into places where others wouldn't go, and we enter with a kingdom power and a kingdom authority, recognizing that we enter because we have been empowered by the very king of the kingdom, by his Holy Spirit dwelling within us, and where we go, we take the kingdom with us. Isn't that an awesome thing? Where do you go into your workplace? Where do you go into your studies, into school? Where do you go when you work out? Where do you go when you play golf? You're taking the kingdom of heaven with you. And it's saying, where I go, guess who else goes with me? The king in all of his authority. And so we go in in the very presentness of the kingdom and all the power and the glory of that. Wherever you go is where the kingdom is goes. The key point to all of this This upside-down kingdom that is here in the world where it doesn't look like an American culture, it doesn't look like anything else, it is so different from everything else. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. All the people who were seemingly weak were considered strong. All of these characteristics. Jesus is trying to make the point here of this. Make sure with every bit of effort that you can, with all attention to detail, that you enter the kingdom of heaven while there's still an opportunity. He's saying there's a present reality to the kingdom of heaven, and the gates to the kingdom of heaven are still open. Now, it's a narrow gate, and the entrance into the kingdom is only through one way. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. I'm the door, I'm the gate, I'm the way in. And so when people talk about the kingdom and how to get into the kingdom, It's only through Christ. He is the entrance to the kingdom. 
And what you know is if you say, okay, I believe in Jesus, I have assurance. Here's how you have assurance, friends, that you start to see the power of the kingdom and kingdom life bubbling up and out of your life. You start to see kingdom rule in your life. If you say that I'm a follower of Jesus, I am a subject of the kingdom, yet your life does not reflect the kingdom of heaven, friends, be careful. Be careful. One old Southern Baptist pastor who influenced me said this, I never want to send someone to hell happy. What he meant by that was to say this, there are times of warning. There are times of warning And the American church, our church, the lives of so many, needs to say this. You can't just say you're a follower of Jesus and your life not reflect it. He's saying if you're part of the kingdom, the kingdom's going to be coming out in your life. It will be. You can't say, oh, I love Jesus, but I hate his church. It'd be like saying, Bill, I really love you. I just can't stand Lisa. I really want to be around you, but I can't stand your bride. Like, nope. If you get me, you get her. It's the same way with with the church. I'm saying if you love the king, then you love the king's bride, and you want to be a part of the king's bride, with all of the king's bride's messes, by the way. But we still love the bride, and we're still a part of the bride. And we come and we do that. So there's a presentness to all of this, but there's also a futureness to it. That's what Jesus begins to teach in 22 through 37. He's saying, yes, the kingdom is at hand. It is, it is in you. It is with you. I'm right here in front of you. But I'm going to leave. He speaks of that. He goes, but I'm going to leave. There's things that the Son of Man is going to have to experience. He's pointing to Easter. He's pointing to the death and the resurrection. And that he's going to leave. But he said, but then I'm going to come back. You know, we're still waiting for the glorious return of the king. They were then as well. It's been thousands of years. We're waiting for Jesus, the King, to return. And as we wait, what Jesus is warning about here, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. You won't. And they'll say, look there and look here. And he says, don't follow them. He basically is saying this, be careful not to get caught up with all of the prophecy experts. In the 80s, 70s, 60s, uh, Russia was the fulfillment of all of the revelation passages of Jesus must be returning because of the Cold War. And now it's moved to Middle Eastern powers and to Chinese powers. And there's books. There was a book written in 1986, 86 Reasons that Jesus is going to return in 1986. It was amended the next year. But boy, things like that sell. You know, Jesus is coming. People are looking around. Bill, is this it? Pandemic. Hey, this must be it. Because heaven knows in the last 2,000 years, the world hasn't had a plague. This must be it. No, it's not it. It's a sign of the times, but it doesn't mean he's coming tomorrow. It means that in this season, there's all these things. And we're looking and we're looking and we're looking and we're looking. And friends, here's what Jesus says. Here's the first thing you need to know about the futureness of the kingdom. There's rejection first. Christ will return, but in the interim, there's going to be a lot of folks who are going to reject him. That's why he's talking about Noah and Lot. 
He goes to these Old Testament righteous men. Noah was a righteous man. Lot was a righteous man. But he says, look at everything that's there. Notice what he didn't talk about. In this passage, he didn't talk about Lot's righteousness. He didn't talk about Noah's righteousness. He also didn't talk about all the debauchery of Sodom. He didn't talk about all the drunkenness of the days uh, during Noah. He didn't talk about all of those things. Interesting what he talked about in there. He talked, and the greatest problem and the greatest way that people were rejecting and will continue to reject Jesus and the king is by eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage and by buying and selling and planting and building. It was not their sin as great as it was that damned them to destruction. It was their indifference. It was their indifference to the king. They were so busy marrying and doing business and doing all of these things, they were so preoccupied, preoccupied with the normal, everyday life that they rejected the kingdom. This is the way that it will be in the end. He says, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. If that doesn't sound like today in America, I don't know what it sounds like that we are so preoccupied with day-to-day living that we have very little time to consider Jesus at all. I want to gain more stuff. I'd like to get married. I want to go to this college, and then let's get it sequenced right. I'd like to go to this college, and then I'd like to get this job, and then I'd like to get this spouse, and then I'd like to have this amount of children and earn this amount of money to retire at this age down to the low country. Does that sound like anything? So preoccupied with the possessions of this life that we're possessed by our possessions. And what Jesus is saying is be very, very careful. The kingdom of heaven is being rejected both by outright rejection. And friends, you can read that on the front page of most magazines and of most websites and all. There is outright rejection of the things of the kingdom of heaven. We see that. But Jesus says, don't be all that worried about that. That's going to be there. We see it. We know that's there. What you should be most concerned about is the subtle rejection because we've gotten caught up in the American dream. We've gotten caught up in all of these things. David Gooding, the the quote that I gave you in the front of the bulletin there, David Gooding writes this, and he's speaking of Lot's wife. If you remember the story of Lot's wife, said, get out of the city and don't look back. And she's leaving. But she could not, she could not consider her life without her stuff. And she looked back. And it was in being possessed by her possessions that she found her destruction. Some people are so taken up with material things that Christ thinks it's necessary to warn them that on the very day in which he will be revealed to execute the wrath of God on evil centers and conglomerations of human iniquity, that they will be tempted to go back into the house or city to get their favorite possessions because they cannot imagine life without them. For the sake of things, they will lose life itself. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, if you're on the rooftop and the Son of Man returns, don't go down into your house and go, I need to gather a few things. It's okay if there's a hurricane coming. 
We have our hurricane box. We know what important documents to put in there. We grab a few of the pictures that we want to make sure that we have just in case the house gets blown down or flooded, and we're going to take that with us. We know what to grab. What Jesus is saying is when he returns, everything else pales. You don't need to worry about taking a thing with you, but some people will, and you're looking and going, how crazy is that? Friends, it's not all that crazy because if it was, Jesus wouldn't warn us about it. He says, if you want to preserve your life, you have to lose your life. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will, will keep it. Jesus is teaching the need to let go of this life and all of its stuff. But during this time, before Christ returns, there's going to be a rejection. And friends, don't just look to the sensational rejection of Jesus. Look to the subtle rejection of him that is sweeping and overtaking the church. Second thing he says about the coming kingdom uh, is, yes, there'll be rejection first. It'll be both uh, sensational and subtle. He says, this return will be universal in nature. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to another, so will the Son of Man be on his day. Here's the gist of this. When Jesus returns, okay, I want, this is hugely, this is so important. If, when Jesus returns, you won't miss it. You won't miss it. People are going, how am I going to know? You'll know. He says, as if a million strands of lightning flash together simultaneously around the entire hemisphere, everyone will know instantaneously that the Son of Man, the King of Kings, has returned into time and space, and everyone will know you won't miss it, so quit worrying if you're going to miss it. Live as if it's coming, because it's coming. <laughs> Is it coming? What's it going to look like? It's, I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know how a billion, billions of people are going to see Jesus simultaneously, but he's God. I'm not. I don't worry about those things. Jesus is saying it will come, and it will come, and it will be universal in nature. That's what the disciples were saying. Where is it, Lord? Is it Jerusalem? Nope. It is Jerusalem, but it's also not Jerusalem. Is it America? Yes, it is America, but it's also not America. It is universal in its scope. You see, by the way, as a side, this dismantles the need to rebuild the temple. Millions upon millions and millions of dollars are being spent to rebuild the temple in Israel because there's a belief that by build, rebuilding the temple, then Jesus will come to the temple site. Friends, Jesus says here, I am the temple and I will return. You don't need to rebuild anything. So by the way, if you're giving money to that, you can stop with clear conscience that that is not what you need to be doing. Christ's return will be universal in its nature. And Christ's return, by the way, will affect everyone. That's what he says there in this last part. He said, on that day, let the one on the housetop, we've talked about that, remember Lot's wife. And then he begins in verse 34. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. And there will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. What he's saying is this. He's saying, listen. Christ's uh, return is going to affect everyone. Outward appearances are not what determine entrance into the kingdom. These people look the exact same. There were a couple of folks sleeping in bed, and there were a couple of women working. They all, on the outward appearances, looked the very same, but there was something intrinsically different by them. Your outward righteousness, your outward goodness, is not what determines your entrance into the kingdom. Jesus discriminates as a matter of faith 
I'm a good person. Goodness and doing good things are not the key. Faith in Christ, the King, is the key. Judgment is coming, is what he's saying. Judgment's coming. Be ready. And then he gives this wonderful verse that Chris is going to explain next week. Where, Lord? And he says, well, where you see the corpse, there the vultures will gather also. (laughs) Right, Chris? No. (laughs) You're going, what in the world? Here's what I'll say to that. I have no idea. Other than this, it's best understood as a proverb about spiritual life and death. The place where people are spiritually dead is the place where the forces of judgment will gather, much the way vultures circle around a carcass. All he's really trying to say is this is an image of the finality of the coming judgment that is to come. There is a time when the king is going to return, and friends, for those who don't know him, that is not a good day. And for those who know him, it should create within us an urgency to make sure that we're in the kingdom and an urgency to tell those who we know aren't in the kingdom about the king and beg and plead with them to come into the kingdom and quit worrying about how we're perceived by them. It's saying the king's coming back, and I want you to meet him today, not when he comes back. Because when he comes back, it's not on a little donkey like he rode in on Palm Sunday. It's on a blazing stallion. And he's wielding a sword that is dipped in blood. And he's coming back. And he will separate households and families and individuals. That's what Jesus is saying. The bottom line is that the king is returning one day. And his return will be glorious and simultaneously horrible. So let's end with this today. What do we do with all of this? Friends, we live in an age of tension. We live in the already and the not yet. We live in the fact that Christ has come, but he is going to return again. And so what do we do in the interim? We look to this book to see how to live. This is our kingdom guidebook. This is kingdom life. This is what does it mean to do and to live in the kingdom until the king returns. How do we steward his kingdom How do we steward his kingdom resources? How do we take care of everything? What's our mindset? How are we to engage in marriage? How do we engage in sexuality? How do we engage in business? How do we engage in life? How do we love? Uh, How do we judge? Uh, How do we do all the things that we're called to do in this age of tension come here? That's why Presbyterians used to be known as people of the book because this was the most important thing that we knew And we studied it because our king said, I'm going to leave you something until I come back. So we study this and we live it. And we look forward to the coming kingdom. The American church, I think, is the first church in all of history that's never experienced any sort of persecution. And I think that is to our detriment. We're the first church in all of history that doesn't pray the prayer, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. We say, Jesus, we want you to come, but we'd sure like to do these things first. We want you to come, but only as a snap-on at the end of our days because we want to enjoy the fullness of the American dream that you've planted in front of us. Friends, we're the only church in the world not praying Maranatha. Our brothers and sisters in China are praying for Jesus to return. Our brothers and sisters who are dying uh, in Africa are praying for Jesus to return. 
Our brothers and sisters in the Middle East who are being beheaded and killed are praying for Jesus to return. We're the only church in all of the world that is saying, do you mind hanging out for a little while longer? I've got some things I'd like to do. Friends, there is an urgency of life that we're missing, and it's missing in our church. It's missing in our lives. And so in this time, in this age, there is the overarching need for humanity today to prepare for the inevitable return of the king because he is coming. And in the meantime, this king, he invites you to his table today. And he says, I want you to feast with me. Because one day you'll feast with me again. It'll be in the new heaven and the new earth. And we look forward to that day. And what this table does, it's a foretaste. It's an appetizer for what's to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the goodness of who you are, the challenges of Scripture, the challenges of passages that talk about the already and the not yet. We kind of like the already. We kind of like our lives, and we prefer that the king not disrupt it too much. Bless it a little bit. Sprinkle your kingdom pixie dust over it and make it all wonderful and good like a Disney movie. But Father, the true king comes. And in that, we obey. And we kneel and we, we do as you called us to do. And we look expectantly to the horizon every moment of every day waiting for your return. And until then, we pray that we would be faithful and true. To God be the glory. Amen.